On August 15th, Afghanistan's capital city of Kabul fell to the Taliban. During the month of August, more than 100,000 people have been evacuated by military airlifts from U.S. and coalition partners or commercial flights, and many thousands more desperately await evacuation. On August 26th, there was a suicide bombing outside of the airport in Kabul that killed at least 60 Afghans and 13 U.S. service members and wounded more than 100 others. ISIS-K, the Islamic State Group's Afghan affiliate, claimed responsibility. Afghanistan is now effectively under the rule of the Taliban, the ultra-fundamentalist Islamic group that ruled the nation of Afghanistan with an iron fist for five years before U.S.-led forces removed them from power in 2001. The situation in Afghanistan is a horrifying nightmare. It's madness. Absolute chaos. And now with the Taliban in power, the small population of Christians in Afghanistan are at risk for even more significant persecution than before. How did all of this happen? Who are the Taliban and what do they want? What's it like to be a Christian in Afghanistan right now? How can we be praying for them, supporting them, and helping them in any way? And is there any hope for Afghanistan? Welcome to the Beards and Bible podcast. It certainly is good to be back together at last. Gabe, it's so good to see your beautiful face this morning. How you doing, man? Hmm. I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Yeah, you're back in the U.S. of A. I am. Um, yeah. What? When did you arrive? What day did you arrive? I got back on the 21st of August, Sunday night. Okay. And uh, yeah, man, it was really... It was good to be back. It was a great trip. Um, where have you been? Where have I been? I've been in Uganda. Mm. Uganda, be kidding me. Uh, it was really good, man. We were over there doing some ministry with uh, our missionary, Tara Henson, that you spent some time with as well. Yeah. And some of the really cool stuff that she's doing. Yeah. Uh, what, what was it like? I mean, I know they're under lockdown right now. Or are they still under curfew and honestly, schools closed and stuff? I could give you like the the PC answer and I could give you the actual answer. Mm-hmm. Nobody's following lockdown. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like they're supposed to have a curfew at seven. And so we really were like following the curfew because we we're like, wow, we don't want to, I don't want to get like detained in a foreign country, you know? So mm-hmm. we were doing everything we needed to do to follow it and wear a mask. We need to wear a mask in places we did and not have gatherings over 20 people and all that good stuff. But most Ugandans are just so tired of it, man. So mm-hmm. they're still out and about, you know, after the curfew and nobody's really following it. Because I think, and, and you know, it's funny. I don't think it's just in the U.S. people are COVID weary. I think it's like everywhere. Like we had a layover in Amsterdam and people in Amsterdam were, I could tell in a lot of places kind of done with it too, you know. Yeah. Yeah. It's fatigued by it. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, you know. It's, it's kind of crazy just even seeing numbers here when I got back to Tennessee, like there's a lot of folks here in the community I'm in that have COVID and some people are in the hospital and stuff. And, you know, it's one of those things where people are doing what they feel like they need to do to try to stay safe. But still, I mean, this thing is far from over and, but people are just getting tired of it, you know? Mm-hmm. So 
Mm-hmm. Um, it is what it is, you know? Yeah. So, but trip was great though. Trip was really, really good. We had an awesome time doing ministry with the street kids there in Jinja. We went to an Island on Lake Victoria, saw some really cool stuff, did some evangelism. Um, and then I ended with a pastor's conference for about two days. So it was, it was great. Sweet. Did you yeah, happen, happen to get a uh, ED Amin's revenge? ED Amin's <laughs> revenge. In your, your intestinal tract? You know, uh, <laughs> I think I did pretty good. But dude, when we were going to uh, the villages like out on Lake Victoria, mm-hmm. they would feed us and whatever they fed us is what we ate. Like it's really rude to not mm-hmm. eat what you're offered. And so the beef over there is not like they don't trim any of the fat off of it. It's literally mm. just like every part of the cow goes in the stew they give you. Mm. And I don't really eat a lot of beef back home. And so, um, yeah, the beef did not settle too well with my tummy. Mm. Um, and the gristle. That, oh, yeah, man, there's all sorts of parts of the cow that went into the stew that I'm like, oh, okay, we're going to cook that too. Mm. So, um, yeah, I had a little bit of hard time with that, kind of digesting that. Mm. And then, uh, you know, doing the pastor's conference too is the same thing. Like every time they would fix my plate for me, they would heap it up with everything because it was like a big honor for them. You know, I was mm-hmm. a guest. So they, and, and it was super, super rude for me to not eat all of it. But like, dude, <laughs> it was There's like, no way. No I was way. trying so hard because it was the uh, Matoka, which is mm-hmm. like bananas, kind of like quick crete. If you can imagine quick great that's that's what it is basically it's yeah, much like the steamed banana yeah of. it's about 10 pounds mm. like a spoonful of it weighs about 10 pounds but uh i ate it to the grace of god so mm. all is well how, how have you been uh good good yeah just um we're preparing for the fall holy days so we're coming up on yeah. rosh hashanah and yom kippur and, and then uh feast of tabernacles sukkot Yes. Yeah. Just trying to iron out all the details with that. Um, you know, planning and organizing and we, uh, every year we have a big congregational camp out for a week where we invite people. We have some congregants who have, um, about eight acres and they open up their property for people to come. And every night we gather there and we have, uh, worship and time of Bible study, uh, like lots of kids games and um volleyball in the day we have classes and stuff at like three and four o'clock in the afternoon where um people can come and teach things everything from like you know canning to how to interpret the bible like just random stuff wow. like different people bring their gifts and their abilities and yeah that's that awesome, a week so we're just kind of organizing we had 100 people last year come to that and uh was that for and- feast of tabernacles mm-hmm. yeah, yeah yeah so that's really families, cool a lot of kids so it's a lot of fun yeah, I'm teaching in Nehemiah 8 this week. And uh, mm-hmm. as you know, in Nehemiah 8, Nehemiah, uh, well, Ezra actually encourages uh, the people as they're reading the law to observe the Feast of Tabernacles. And so I'm teaching on the Feast of Tabernacles this week and kind mm-hmm. of the significance of that. So that's really, really cool. Yeah. Yeah. It's coming that's coming up in September 20th. Is that yep. this yeah, year? Okay. September 20th. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's awesome. Yeah. Well, big news story that happened while I was in Uganda, and um, really it was everywhere all over the news, especially here in the U.S., but even internationally, was uh, the fall of Kabul in Afghanistan and um, how Taliban forces took control 
on August 15th. So that would have been like a second day I was over in Uganda. Mm. And, um, man, it was crazy just to see that on the news and not even be in the U S but still see just worldwide kind of reaction for that. Um, what was your gut reaction when you first saw that on the news? Like what, what did that do for you? Uh, you know, I don't really have a deep emotional connection to Afghanistan. Like some people maybe who spent uh, a couple of years of their life over there, like friends of mine who have spent a couple of years of their life and risked risk their lives over there. Yeah. Um, but I still, I felt a deep emotion, um, probably just sadness and, mm-hmm. and confusion. Um, a little bit of anger because you're like, well, why did we exert all this money and human lives and resources yeah. um, to, to spend so much time there when it's just seemed like, okay, well, we're done by, and then, you know, hand it over to the people that we seem to be fighting. Yeah. Yeah. I think mine was the same way. I think mine was confusion. I was just kind of like, how, how did that happen? Yeah. You know, like I thought that we had been there for 20 years and actually made some gains and, um, yeah, I don't know. Sadness, confusion, frustration, anger. I think I, I really felt for, again, friends of mine that had served over there and um, had done so at great expense to both themselves and, you know, folks that they've served with. Yeah. And really, I was thinking like 20 years ago, this time 20 years ago, would have been, we're recording this on September 1st. So mm-hmm. first part of September in 2001. You and I both would have been juniors in high school. Is that right? Uh, yeah, yeah. I think I was. Go- I think I was going to my junior year. Yeah, and obviously, what happened on September 11th of 2001 had a huge impact on our entire generation. Mm-hmm. So, classmates that um, I had in school ended up going and serving in the military and going to Afghanistan and. Um, you know, many of them came back from that with uh, experiences that shaped the direction of their entire life. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, uh, for the past 20 years, it seems like Afghanistan has kind of just been an open tab in the collective consciousness of mm-hmm. Americans. Yeah, it's a good way of putting it. It's like we don't want to close it out yeah. prematurely, but at the same time, it's kind of annoying that it's there, you know. I use Google Chrome and there's like probably seven tabs open right now. And some of these things that I haven't looked at in a month are sitting there and I'm like, oh, I got to right. deal with this, you know, I got to get closure on that, but um, mm-hmm. I don't want to close it out prematurely. Um, and it's kind of like Thomas Jefferson said this about slavery. And I think this very much applies to us in our involvement in Afghanistan is that we, we had the wolf by its ears, you know? Yeah. And yeah, I feel so detached from the issue because I've never been there. I know several people who have, but um, I don't know the culture of Afghanistan. I don't know the language. You know, I, I the religion seems foreign to me. It's it's I'm so detached being United States of America, and uh, I, I that's and that's one of my frustrations with this issue is like you hear so many voices and so many opinions and pundits and talking heads about what we should have done, what went wrong, you know, all this other stuff. Like, you know, how how many how many. Uh, weapons did we actually leave them? How many Humvees did we leave? All this stuff. You mm-hmm. hear all this conflicting information. How many Americans are we leaving? Are they staying there by choice? Are we just deserting them? And in the sea of like swirling information, I'm just like, oh, what do I, how do I make sense of all of this? Yeah. And then in the middle of all that, 
there are real Christians and believers who are are not leaving Afghanistan. That that is their home, and they yeah. they don't have a right to leave per se. And the Taliban is opposed to them. That, that I know is true, and that I know yeah. is dangerous for them. Yeah, and I think that's a good point. Like, um, again, you can turn on any podcast or broadcast on talk radio or TV station, you know, that's opinion driven and hear all sorts of perspectives on who's to blame, who, who got it wrong. And, and I don't really feel like that's kind of the aim of our podcast today. We, we want to look at, um, the people that this affects. Yeah. And, and mainly, you know, I know this affects a lot of people. So there, I know there's I, I know for a fact that there's a couple of vets who are listening to this who served in Afghanistan, and we see you, we know you. Thank you for listening. Um, I'm thinking of my buddy Dwayne who uh, listens. Dwayne, here's your shout out, man. Thank you for your service. I know you served in Afghanistan. That's uh, amazing. Thank you for doing that. And and I know that this is painful for a lot of those guys to to see happening on the news. And, and I don't want to discount that, but I, I do want to spend a lot of time talking about the the Afghans that are there right now and what their life is going to be like because of the Taliban and because of what's happening with the Taliban taking over and, um, you know, what that's going to be like and how we can be praying and how we can be thinking about them. And, and, you know, and if there's any hope for the nation of Afghanistan and, and what that hope is and what our response should be and what our mindset should be. Cause I, I feel like we do this terrible thing as Americans, especially is anytime something happens in the news cycle that like is a real thing that actually affects real people. We have a tendency to take that incident and make that into a mascot for our own particular political perspective. Yeah. Or we, we think that sharing something about pray for Christians in Afghanistan, like that's a good thing to do, obviously. Mm -hmm. But uh, we really need to kind of back that up and and not just it just kind of turn into just virtue signaling on on social media. Yeah, we um, change our profile picture on Facebook. I did something. <laughs> yeah. And I, what I did you do? The, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's one of the frustrations I have is feeling you know, very, very helpless. Not yeah. like, not, not like I feel helpless, but I feel powerless to affect any sort of help in this situation. Yeah. And I think a lot of people do. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people do. And that's part of the uh, frustration, you know, of seeing it fall and seeing things happen on the news. It's kind of like we're sitting back going, man, what, what do we do now? You know, or what can we do? So, yeah. well, here's what we're going to do today. And, <clears throat> um, there are a lot of, like we said, uh, different outlets covering this story and covering this topic. And so what we what we really want to do is we want to go through just kind of a timeline of the facts of what is happening, what happened, what led up to it, and then talk about just kind of what life is probably going to be like under the Taliban and uh, and we're also going to talk about the Taliban. Like I'm, I'm sure everybody's heard that in the news the past 20 years, but who are these people? You know, what is this group all about? What do they want? What's it like to live under their control? And, uh, and then kind of end our discussion today, just talking about the persecuted church and um, how it's not just in places like Afghanistan. It's really a lot of countries in the world right now. It's um, 
very difficult to be a believer and almost impossible to be public about your Christian faith without um, fear of loss of life or loss of property or violence done to you and your family. So Mm. sound good? Yeah, let's do it. All right. So on August 15th, the capital city of Kabul fell to Taliban forces. And uh, that really was a kind of a culmination of there was a military offensive against the Afghan government that started in May. And the president of Afghanistan fled the country. And hours after he fled, uh, Kabul fell. But most of the um, capitals of the provinces of Afghanistan had fallen um, kind of in successive order. And that was right in the midst of the withdrawal of U.S. troops. And so this is why for a lot of Americans, they're watching this news story because, you know, if I'm sure everybody knows this, but, you know, don't want to take it for granted that we have a lot of people listening from other parts of the world. Um, U.S. troops have been in Afghanistan since 2001. And slowly but surely, the number of troops have been reduced. Um, And in February of 2020, there was a meeting called the Doha Agreement, and that was in Doha, Qatar, which I thought this was super interesting studying. Uh, Qatar is actually uh, one of the countries that like claims to be the headquarters for the Taliban, hmm. which is nuts. Have you ever been to Qatar? No, I haven't. I haven't. Uh, I've had a couple of layovers there, man. It's like very developed. It's almost like Las Vegas meets like uh, the Green Hills Mall and in. in uh, <laughs> in West End Nashville. Like it's just really swanky and a lot of oil money and stuff like that. But yeah, yeah. Um, that's where a lot of Taliban um, headquarters are, which I just thought that was interesting. But mm. anyway, the U.S. and Taliban uh, met together in Doha, Qatar in February 2020. This is before COVID or before any of this stuff. And I think we probably didn't hear about this as much as we probably should have because of everything happening with COVID around that mm-hmm. time. But in this agreement, uh, the U.S. agreed, along with other NATO forces, to withdraw and reduce NATO forces from Afghanistan in return for the Taliban pledging to prevent al-Qaeda, which we've heard about al-Qaeda since 9-11. Al-Qaeda is a militant Sunni Islamic terrorist group. So Taliban promised that they weren't going to let al-Qaeda operate in areas that the Taliban controlled. Does that make sense so far? Yeah. And it's worth noting too, that Al Qaeda is a, uh, a terrorist organization that thinks on a global scale uh, and it specifically targets the USA as yeah. being a source of a lot of Western and, you know, infidel kind of pollution in the world. Yeah. And, Whereas the Taliban thinks more local, they, they want to establish a local um, Pashtun, like tribesmen-driven caliphate there in the country of Afghanistan. Yeah. So that's why we're okay with talking to the Taliban and saying, okay, as long as you keep Al-Qaeda at bay, as long as you don't join forces with them and allow them to kind of like resurrect and con- you know continue out um, their, their terrorist attacks in, in the West— 
then then we'll make this agreement with you. Whereas the Taliban, right. they're more they're more like locally based. They want a Sharia law driven, Pashtun based government. Yes, there in Afghanistan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and I think that's that. Thank you for sharing that because that's a really important distinction. I think in two thousand one, you know, with everything happening, we heard Al Qaeda and then we heard Taliban, and we were like, oh, they're the same mm-hmm. thing. Mm-hmm. Well, not really. Mm-hmm. But the reason that the U.S. is even in Afghanistan to begin with is because in 2001, after the September 11th attacks on New York City and D.C., and it was going to happen in other places as well, um, the U.S. President George W. Bush tentatively blamed al-Qaeda for those attacks, and al-Qaeda, I believe, took credit for it. Osama bin Laden um, was, of course, the leader of the al-Qaeda uh, Al-Qaeda leadership at that time. Mm-hmm. But um, the reason that the U.S. went to Afghanistan is because there were Al-Qaeda camps in Afghanistan that the Taliban basically permitted, allowed, and protected. And so uh, I'm reading from an article that talks about what happened. So uh, on September 20th, 2001, George W. Bush publicly condemned the Taliban regime and went on to state in a joint session of Congress tonight, the United States of America makes the following demands on the Taliban, which he said were not open to negotiation or discussion. And those demands were deliver to the U.S. all the leaders of al-Qaeda, uh, release all foreign nationals who've been unjustly imprisoned, protect foreign journalists, diplomats, and aid workers, close immediately every terrorist training camp, hand over every terrorist and their supporters to appropriate authorities, and give the United States full access to terrorist training camps for inspection. So basically, the, the Taliban was aiding terrorist training camps in Afghanistan that were al-Qaeda driven. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense so far? Yeah, yeah. So the Doha Agreement, which happened in February 2020, 2020 stated, hey, we'll get out of Afghanistan. You've just got to promise al-Qaeda is not going to come in and start building terrorist camps and you're not going to permit them to do that. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, and that, that in the in Al Qaeda, as far as we know, their central leadership is kind of disintegrated, and they they don't they don't have a strong central leadership, and they're probably at their lowest point in terms of organization right now. However, and we're probably going to talk about this. There is this new, um, cracked out cousin version of the Al of Al Qaeda that has that has emerged. And we're like, wow, this is this is not good. And that is ISIS and ISIS K. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's just posing a whole other series of threats. There. Yeah, and the most recent suicide bombing in the airport in Kabul was ISIS K that took credit for that. Mm-hmm. Um, which is kind of, I mean, it's it's the same, <laughs> it's kind of the same animal, but in a different reiteration. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of wanting the same thing, maybe not uh, as directed towards the U.S. as Al-Qaeda, but the same sense. Yeah, and a lot of these different groups and these Islamic groups, they they differ over who gets the title Caliph. And a a Caliph is an Arabic word, which means successor. Hmm. So all these guys are fighting over who is the rightful Pope of Sunni Islam, basically, if you want to put it in Catholic terms. And that is causing 
um, you know, all of this rift and everything. And that's, that's why ISIS and Al Qaeda, they don't, they don't get along because they both claim a different caliph basically. And, and then a, when a, um, like ISIS, ISIS created a caliphate that is like an anglicized version of basically you got a caliph and then you've got a Islamic state, a group of Muslims that can govern themselves by fundamentalist Sharia law. And that, that's what we call a caliphate. So all of this is like disagreement over who gets to be the caliph and who gets to decide where the caliphate will start and where it'll be based. Hmm. Yeah. And that's, it, it, we, we could probably do a whole other episode on that, but a lot of that is mm-hmm. related to their understanding of eschatology as Muslims. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So how Christian eschatology teaches in the millennial kingdom, how Messiah will rule and reign on the earth for a thousand years uh, Islamic eschatology kind of says the same thing, but that you've got to usher in the kingdom through military and fundamental mm-hmm. uh, force, basically. Yeah. So it, that's part of the motivation behind it, which I would argue too that Islam is not just a religion; it's also an ideology, and a quite dangerous one at that. I would add, but that's mm-hmm. probably for another episode. Mm-hmm. So. So as per the Doha agreement, the U.S. agreed to an initial reduction of its force level from 13,000 troops to 8,600 within 135 days. So by July 2020, followed by a full withdrawal within 14 months. So that would be by 1st of May 2021 if the Taliban kept its commitments. Now, again, part of the reason we didn't hear about this as much was because that was right around the COVID-19 pandemic, right when I was breaking in the news. Yeah. Uh, July 2020, man, we were in the middle of like stuff happening in Kenosha, Wisconsin and Black Lives Matter rallies and race riots. And I mean, it was just a crazy time. So all that kind of just got swept under the rug in terms of the news cycle. We didn't really hear a lot about it. Um, but nevertheless, that's what the Doha agreement stated. And the U.S. also committed to closing five military bases within 135 days. And it would end economic sanctions on the Taliban by August 27, 2020. So that's essentially what it was. And the U.S. agreed. The U.S. signed it. And after it was signed on February 29, 2020, <laughs> almost immediately there were insurgent attacks against the Afghan security forces. So the National Army of Afghanistan, the Taliban basically just said, we're going to overthrow them. Mm -hmm. And so they resumed these offensive operations. They conducted attacks in the Kundis in Helmand provinces. And uh, in the 45 days after the agreement, so in March and April of 2020, again, while we were in the midst of COVID-19, so we didn't really hear about this, uh, the Taliban conducted more than 4,500 attacks in Afghanistan. So a 70% increase compared to the same period in the previous year, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is crazy. So they signed this agreement and immediately turned around and just like amped up their war efforts to overthrow the Afghan security forces in these provinces. More than 900 Afghan security forces were killed in the period, up from about 520 in the same period a year earlier. And... Um, What's crazy is just the U.S. response to that, and and I don't I don't know because I'm not a military guy. I don't really understand the U.S. response to it. But 
When that was happening, the Pentagon spokesman, Jonathan Hoffman, said that although the Taliban stopped conducting attacks against the U.S.-led coalition forces in Afghanistan, uh, he still said this this violence is unacceptably high. It's not conducive to diplomatic solution. We have continued to do defensive attacks to help defend our partners. We'll continue to do that. But basically, because it wasn't happening against U.S.-led coalition forces, the U.S. didn't really do anything. Hmm. Uh, which I don't really understand that. And maybe it's just because I don't really know the dynamics between what were the U.S.-led coalition forces and the Afghan security forces and what was the difference between the two. But hmm. as far as I understand, the U.S. basically said, if it's not happening against Americans, we're not really going to do that. We're not really in the position to do anything about it. Yeah. So it's almost like the Taliban continue just to see itself as the legitimate government of the country of Afghanistan. Yeah, basically. And that Yeah, the, 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 the Afghan government propped up by the uh, U.S.-led coalition forces is just an illegitimate government. And mm-hmm. yeah, in some ways, um, I wonder if we should have, this is me talking, you know, from Dothan, Alabama, never having stepped foot in Afghanistan. Yeah. Yeah. But I wonder if we should have been like, you know, we should we see we see violence on the rise we see the taliban coming in and 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 making some pretty good headway like taking more ground let's actually slow this withdrawal down and push yeah. them back and but yeah it's so it's so tough to know all it's such a complex situation and but at the same time you have to ask like why didn't the afghan national forces you know the why didn't this new government established by this coalition why why didn't it have the ability to to fight back and, and right. take ownership of this attack and some yeah. people speculate you know maybe the higher-ups of the the army were paid off by the taliban and their loyalties weren't really there um so there's just a lot of a lot of questions circulating around and we should have yeah. done this or we could have done this better you know yeah and analysts are you know analysts have several different theories of what went wrong and we'll kind of get into that here in a minute. But I mean, I think most people are agreed. uh, Most people agree that like the withdrawal was premature Mm -hmm. that the U S and other NATO forces should have slowed down the withdrawal um, instead of just, you know, continuing with it, even as the Taliban continued to uh, attack Afghan national defense and security forces. So, in June of 2020, um, 291 members of the Afghan National Defense Security Forces were killed. Uh, 550 were wounded. There were 422 attacks carried out by the Taliban. 42 civilians were killed. 105 wounded. 60 civilians were kidnapped. And all the while, we we're withdrawing troops. Mm-hmm. Um, so from 13,000 to 8,600. Um, that was kind of the initial agreement and the NATO secretary general pledged to do that too. So there was 16,000 NATO troops. They were going to bring that down to about 12,000. So right in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic, when everything on the news was not talking about Afghanistan, the U S started withdrawing some of its soldiers. And in July 1st, 2020, the U.S. House Armed Services Committee overwhelmingly voted to restrict President Trump's ability to withdraw troops below the 8,600 that had been acted on. So basically, they said, we got to slow our roll with this. Mm -hmm. Like, 
stuff in Afghanistan is becoming increasingly unstable. Let's slow our roll. But then we had a changing of the guard with the executive branch in January of 2021. And in January 2021, there were still 2,500 U.S. soldiers still in Afghanistan. And initially, Biden's national security advisor said the administration would review the withdrawal agreement. But then in April, and this is where it kind of gets wishy-washy. You just can't really... I've researched this a lot over the past few days trying to figure out exactly when stuff was said and when it was said, but it kind of seems like the Biden administration has not been very communicative about a definite plan of when they're going to withdraw and how they're going to withdraw and how many, because initially it was May 1st and then it was September 11th and then it was (laughs) August 31st. Mm -hmm. Um, But ultimately what ended up happening is that Western troops, that's U.S. and NATO, started being withdrawn with no agreement having been reached from the Taliban. So basically the Taliban was not holding up their end of the bargain. And then as the troops withdrew, the Taliban basically took control of the country by force. And they say they want this peaceful transfer of power between the Taliban and Afghan officials, but that's not really happening And meanwhile, when you turn on the news during the month of August, there was more than 100,000 people crammed into the Kabul airport trying to get out of the country because many of them probably remember what it was like to live in Afghanistan during the reign of the Taliban. And they're like, man, I don't want to live in a place like that. Mm -hmm. Um, So you have all these people crammed into this airport in Kabul trying to get out of the country. Um there's military airlifts from the U.S. and coalition partners that are trying to get people out. There's commercial flights trying to get people out. One of the most sickening things I heard on the news story is there's like opportunists who are uh, offering flights, like charter flights out of Afghanistan, but they're jacking up the prices and price gouging mm-hmm. because they know people are desperate. And so these like sick opportunists are basically making money off people who just want to survive. Mm. And that's, that's horrible to me. I don't know why I just, when I saw that, it just made my skin crawl. But on August 26th, there was a suicide bombing um, outside of the airport there in Kabul, and 60 Afghans were killed, 13 U.S. service members were killed, 100 others were wounded. And it wasn't the Taliban who claimed responsibility. It was ISIS-K, that group that you're talking about, part of the Islamic State group who claimed responsibility. So... In a nutshell, that's what's going on. It is chaos. It is madness. It is confusion on so many levels. And, um, yeah, it's heartbreaking. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's like what I would love to see, and maybe this, this exists and I just don't know about it, would be a comparison between the withdrawal from Iraq and the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. And why did one go better than the other? And I was asking a friend of mine who spent considerable amount of time in both countries in the U S army. It's like, well, we, we, um, kind of our drawdown of troops in Iraq. We, we got down to like last U S troops were stationed in, in a military installation. So it was like easy to defend and easy to get U S planes in and out. Um, it was basically designed to be a military fortress. Whereas 
in Afghanistan, it was like the drawdown of U.S. troops and NATO-led troops. It's like it happened around a civilian airport that was not yeah. designed to be defense, defendable and and was it just, you know, it only has one runway. It's kind of this just decrepit old airport. And, uh, you know, it's like this just very different methods of withdrawal <laughs> from the country. But yeah, I don't know. I don't know if that led to some of the the insecurity there or what, but mm -hmm. yeah, it's, it's just tragic. Well, you know, it's, yeah. And, and analysts have talked about causes of this. And again, I mean, we'll probably write about this in the history books. I mean, just like people mm -hmm. did with Vietnam and other um, military operations the U S was involved in trying to figure out like what went wrong. And so as of right now, and again, this is super fresh. And so th this, this, all of these are just kind of hot takes from analysts who have been following this for years. Mm -hmm. um, one of the primary causes that most people are saying here's here's like the problem is the Taliban forces didn't hold up their end of the bargain of the, the Doha agreement, mm -hmm. but NATO forces, including the U.S., just decided they were going to take the troops out anyway. Mm. Um, so Euro News wrote an article, I believe it was last week, that said, why did Kabul fall so easily into the Taliban's hands? And uh, the, the writer of this article said that it was because the U.S. bestowed the Taliban with political recognition by directly negotiating with the group, mm -hmm. sidelining and forcing the Afghan government to free more than 5,000 Taliban fighters from prison. So that, that's what they said was the first problem is the Trump administration basically recognized the Taliban as a political party. Mm -hmm. And then this article goes on to state that Biden put the last nail on the coffin of the Afghan government and army by the so-called orderly withdrawal of U.S. forces. Apparently, the U.S. hasn't believed the Taliban won't go against the U.S. interest, won't let Afghan still be used against Americans, won't harbor al-Qaeda, and will be softer than in the 90s when they were ruling the country on women and human rights. Mm. So this analyst basically says it's because the U.S. trusted the Taliban. That's <laughs> that's mm. why it fell so easily. Like, yeah. you know. And I can I gotta, see. That. I got to hand it to to George Bush. I think he took a pretty staunch view on the Taliban and not yeah. negotiating with them and not recognizing them as legitimate governing yeah. force in Afghanistan. Yeah. Yeah. Um, other analysts say that one of the causes, and this seems to be the rhetoric of the uh, Biden administration. So Biden addressed the nation a few days ago, and um, this was kind of his. His explanation, and um, it is that Afghan political leaders gave up and fled the country, and the Afghan military collapsed. So the talking points of the Biden administration is basically, it's not the U.S.'s fault, it's Afghanistan's fault. Hmm. Like, they just gave up. So hmm. we can't be fighting a war for them that they don't want to fight for themselves, so there's absolutely nothing we can do for them. If they're not willing to fight for their freedom against the Taliban, why would we stay and fight for their freedom against the Taliban that they are not willing to fight for themselves? And that's tough. You know, it's like, there's truth to that. Like you would hope that they yeah. would take ownership of the fight. Um, but at the same time, it's like, what, what, if you, if you have the resources of the USA and the military might of the USA and you see blatant human rights violations. You know, what what do you do in that? You know, and yeah. the Taliban is you know has a long track record of violating just basic human rights. And yeah, 
Yeah, that's something that's a, that's a very, very tough question. How long do you commit to defending those human rights, <laughs> even when the people don't seem to be taking ownership yeah. of their, their own defense of human rights? Well, and, I, and it was kind of the same question in the Vietnam War, wasn't it? I mean, you mm-hmm. had, you know, the Viet Cong and the North Vietnamese and, yeah. you know, um, it seems like there were many Americans that could see the violations um, against human rights that were being committed in the name of communist ideologies um, with the Viet Cong. But many in South Vietnam were not willing to to stand up against that and fight against that. And so mm-hmm. that question was asked then. I mean, do we stay in there forever and keep fighting for them when they're not willing to do that themselves? You know, so mm-hmm. that's, a hard, that's a tough question to ask. And I don't know if I have the answer to that, but that, that is a, that's a pickle. It really it speaks to the uniqueness of the United States of America in that we were founded and predicated upon this idea that like basic liberty and rights are endowed by our creator and everyone should enjoy that. Um, yeah. And that was kind of, you know, throughout our founding and stuff in the, the 18th century, that was kind of developing and blossoming a little bit and extending even to women and and slaves and stuff. But, you know, we were predicated upon liberty and, Mm -hmm. and, and representation and government. And I think for a country that hasn't had that hard reset or has this like very tribal mindset, Mm -hmm. that that is, that is hard for, for them to wrap their brains around. Yeah. But, um, yeah. So, so for instance, like a woman living, let's say a Christian woman living in Afghanistan right now, she's more than likely going to lose a lot of her personal liberties that yeah. if she was in the United States of America, she would have. Mm-hmm. Um, now what that Afghani woman is thinking in terms of like how much anger she has, or if that's kind of like, well, that's just, you know, the way it is, you know, like, I don't know, like we, as Americans, we get, we get like righteously anger, angry when someone infringes on personal liberties Yeah, because it's kind of like how our nation was founded. Whereas I don't, I don't know that that's the case in other countries. Like, it's just kind of like, well, yeah. we're just used to kind of getting bulldozed, you know, it's just the right. way of life. Yeah. And, and I think that's a good point. Um, other analysts are saying that part of the reason why there hasn't been kind of a unified effort amongst the, um, you know, Afghan security forces to fight against the Taliban is that there's low morale amidst the Afghan army because they've done this for, I mean, since 1996, essentially. <laughs> mm. And really since 2001, you know, so for the past 25 years, that nation has been in a state of constant civil unrest mm-hmm. and and really i think at this point a lot of analysts have pointed to there's a there's an extreme lack of afghan national unity because much of the loyalty is first to ethnic groups mm-hmm. clan groups linguistic affiliations before any type of national loyalty yeah. so people aren't thinking hey i'm afghan they're thinking well i belong to this clan or i belong to this tribe or this is my ethnicity and that's that's kind of what they're following more than I'm fighting for the freedom of Afghanistan. They're like, I don't really care about the freedom of Afghanistan. I'm thinking about this clan from my tribe, basically that lives in the mountains and, you know, we, we can survive under Taliban rule. That's fine. I don't really care about 
who's in power as long as we're okay. Mm-hmm. So a lot of analysts are saying that's kind of the reason why they're not willing to fight. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know what you do with that, you know, as the U.S. military. I don't know how you can do anything with that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I have a friend who uh, flew Apaches in Afghanistan, and, you know, he would fly over these valleys that are such deep, isolated va- valleys with villages in them. And and they would like look at his helicopter and be like, oh, it's the Russians, you know, like mm. thinking it's still like the 1990s and the mm-hmm. Russians are still there. Like they they're so wow. isolated and so tribal. Uh, yeah, the, they say that Afghanistan is like, what do they say? The graveyard of the of empires. Yeah, it's, it's such a fascinating place that so many empires have have failed to really dominate and exert control and influence over but at the same time, it's so pivotal in terms of where it's placed on, on the globe and between all these different continents mm-hmm. that for trade and, and you know, uh, traffic through that region, Afghanistan is crucial. Right. Well, even terrorist training camps. I mean, that mm-hmm. was a great, I mean, it was a horrible place. But if you're a terrorist and you're looking for, hey, where's a place where a terrorist training camp can be isolated and we can indoctrinate and train people to carry out terrorist attacks, then Afghanistan's the place to do it, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, let's talk about the Taliban for a second. Um, who are they? What's it like to live in Afghanistan under Taliban rule? So I, I thought this was interesting. The word Taliban literally means students or seekers. And they're basically an Islamic religious political movement and a military organization. Mm. So their ideology is kind of this really innovative combination of Sharia law, which is like the Islamic law, and militant Islam combined with Pashtun, which is an ethnic Afghan group, social and cultural norms. So kind of this like really innovative mixture of all of those things that um, they're basically their job is they see it is to make sure that everybody in Afghanistan follows this ideology, follows this type of religious observance. And if you don't, they'll, they'll, they'll make you pay. They'll either kill you or they'll enforce violence on you to make you pay basically. So from 96 to 2001, when the U.S. came in and uh, invaded Afghanistan and overthrew the Taliban, uh, they held power over about three quarters of Afghanistan and enforced their strict interpretation of Sharia law. And that included banning um, activities and media, including painting photography, any film or movies that depicted people or any other living things, they saw that as like a form of idolatry. I think it's funny. So if you have a movie that's depicting a tree, is that a living thing? or not? I don't know. You got to make it. It's a rock. That is not a living thing. Um, they prohibited music that used instruments uh, with the exception of a traditional type of drum called a daff. Never heard of that. Hmm. But uh, yeah, no music, no movies, no painting, no photography. Uh, They prevented girls and young women from attending school and from working jobs. 
uh, I thought this was interesting. The only job that they allowed women to work was healthcare because uh, male doctors were prohibited from treating women. Hmm. So they had to have some women working in healthcare. Uh, but women at all times had to be accompanied by a male relative and they had to wear a burqa at all times when in public. And if they didn't do that, they would be publicly whipped or executed. Which is crazy. Yeah. Um, I don't think we have the context even to imagine what that would be like here in the U.S. or in the West. Yeah. Well, and it's important to remember, too, that um, the Soviets were fighting the Mujahideen in the 1990s. And we didn't like the Soviet Union because we were in the midst of the Cold War. That 1980s, I should say, and, and very early in the 90s, we didn't like the Soviet Union because of the Cold War. We're trying to you know, keep this policy of containment going, keeping the Soviet Union from turning Afghanistan into a Soviet satellite state, basically. Mm -hmm. And so then we started pumping money into the, the Mujahideen and resources and, you know, things like um, surface to air missile missiles, like stinger missiles, for instance, mm -hmm. which could start bringing down these, like these big Soviet attack helicopters that cost. Yeah. Did you ever see the movie Charlie Wilson's war with Tom Hanks? No, but I did see Rambo three and that's <laughs> <laughs> probably the most realistic war movie of all time was Rambo three. <laughs> yeah. But no, but it's about that. Yeah. U S basically yeah. provided these, uh, did you say the moot? What's the Mujahideen, word? Mujahideen. 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 Yeah. Yeah. Well, the, the Taliban, they are, they are the descendants, like physical descendants of Mujahideen fighters. And they, hmm. they are people who fled to the Pakistani Afghani border in this mountainous region and received very fundamentalist training in the Islamic faith and also military training. And then came back in, in the, late nineties and took control of all of Afghanistan. Yeah. So in a, in a sense, we kind of created the Taliban. Is that what you're saying? Well, in a sense, we, we definitely didn't help. Right, right, <laughs> when, right, right. When a, a country like the United States of America gets involved with very tribalist, uh, conflicts that have been going on for thousands of years, uh, bad things are going to happen. I mean, it's just like this very, very complicated, delicate web of of uh alliances and tribes and all this and it's just yeah. we don't we don't even begin to, we're just thinking oh the soviet union's moving in there we're going to go in there and help the help right. the enemy of the soviet union and, and you know it's like we're creating a monster you know right 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 yeah that's a that's a really interesting thing to think about um especially in the 80s how many proxy wars were waged during the cold war mm -hmm. in places that a lot of times we we weren't even aware of until years later you know um but yeah, it's interesting. Hmm. So the Taliban forbid pork, alcohol, the internet, music, TV, film, uh, participations in sports like soccer, chess, recreational activities like kite flying. I thought this was so crazy and sad. They wouldn't let people keep pets. So apparently in Afghan culture, keeping pigeons as a pet hmm. is like a very popular thing. And the Taliban strictly prohibited people keeping pigeons as pets. So much so that they would go and like kill every pigeon they saw. Wow. <laughs> Just like, man, you guys hate pigeons. Uh, could you get any nastier than that? You just hate every, every pigeon you see. You're going to go kill them. 
men are forbidden to shave their beards and required to let them grow and keep them long according to the Taliban's liking. They have to wear turbans outside their household. Prayer is made compulsory. So the Muslim call to prayer happens um, early in the morning and several times a day. If you've ever been to countries where there's mosques uh, from the minaret, you'll hear a call to prayer like at 6 a.m. So anybody who didn't immediately stop and begin to pray was arrested. Gambling was banned. Thieves were punished with amputations of their hands and their feet. Uh, women were publicly whipped and executed. This is, again, under Taliban rule from 96 to 2001. Um, and the big part, and the part I think that's significant for us as Christians is to realize that religious and ethnic minorities were heavily discriminated against during Taliban rule. So there's a small percentage of Afghanistan that would be Hindus, Buddhists, and Christians, and then even Shiite Muslims. But all of those religious minorities were so heavily discriminated against that, um, like if you're not a Muslim, you could get checked into a psychiatric hospital. Hmm. Because leaving Islam is considered a sign of insanity. Wow. And so, um, yeah, I mean, just craziness. And we'll get into that here in a minute when we talk about what it's like to be a Christian. But the Taliban is responsible for things like ethnic cleansings, mass killings. In 1998, they denied emergency food to 160,000 people for political and military reasons, leading to many people starving to death. The Taliban is responsible for running a network of human trafficking where they abduct ethnic minority women and sell them into sex slavery in Afghanistan and Pakistan. And then the Taliban is responsible for violence against aid workers and Christians. So there was an effort um, from foreign aid, like non-government organizations to go in and start doing polio vaccinations in some remote areas in Afghanistan. And, um, you know, polio essentially has been eradicated in the U.S., but um, it's a horrible disease. Like if a kid gets polio, they're in a wheelchair for the rest of their lives. Mm-hmm. And so we have eradicated it for all intents and purposes here because of a polio vaccine. But in places like Afghanistan, they don't have that. So these aid workers are basically going into these rural areas with polio vaccines and trying to make sure kids were safe from that happening. And the Taliban... Uh, abducted and killed many of them. Hmm. Um, the Taliban is responsible for restricting modern education, cultural genocide, so destroying churches, um, Buddhist temples and Hindu temples. Uh, any Afghan art that's like thousands of years old isn't safe from the Taliban because, again, they think that that's idolatry. And then forced conscription even among children, like forcing people to be a part of their military. So that's that's why you see those scenes from the airport in Kabul. Mm-hmm. That's why so many people are like, get me the heck out of here, because they remember what life was like under Taliban rule from, you know, 96 to 2001. That's yeah, interesting. So you got like a whole generation of kids and teenagers who've grown up never having experienced Taliban rule and Sharia law. Yeah. Who, who have by and large grown up being influenced by, you know, the, the Western world and, and, you know, 
U.S. coalition forces, U.S.-led coalition forces and stuff. That's that's really interesting. And they don't, they have no frame of reference of what the Taliban is like. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, not to say that, um, I mean, Afghanistan is a, is a Muslim country. Mm-hmm. So there is Sharia law and there is, you know, type of Islamic law that's forced in a lot of communities in Afghanistan, but nowhere near to the extent that it's enforced through the Taliban. Mm-hmm. So it's it's nowhere even close. I mean, the Taliban is is a I'm trying to think of like a equivalent like in <laughs> Christianity. I don't maybe that's mm-hmm. not that's I mean it's a it's an extremist form of Islam, an extremist type of ideology that I think that is not mm-hmm. representative of most Muslims that maybe we have met here in the West. Yeah. Like we would say maybe the, um, what's the Baptist church that is violent and mm. really nasty and hateful. Yeah. West, uh, I can't remember. Uh, that's going to bother me. Yeah. One of us should Google it. But yeah, we would say like they, they are not representative of our, of our beliefs. They are, they are, they're evil. They're hateful, uh, you know, and we we don't own we don't claim them as part of us. Yeah, Westboro, Westboro Baptist Westboro, Church. Yeah, that's it. That's it. Yeah, Fred Phelps, the guy that if yeah that used to go all over uh, um, funerals for U.S. soldiers mm-hmm. and protest and picket outside the funerals and say God loves dead soldiers and crazy stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and had the signs God hates fags and all. I mean, just horrible mm-hmm. stuff horrible stuff and they are called a baptist church <laughs> mm-hmm. and anybody that attends a baptist church is like no 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 no. they're not a baptist church like no that's not representative of like that's a extreme 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 mm-hmm. so i think most muslims you would probably meet in the u.s and you know you meet them and you know hi i'm muslim i go to mosque if you ask him like okay, tell me about the Taliban. They're going to be like, whoa, no, 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 no. That's, those are apples and oranges. We're not, you know, these two things are not like the other. So mm-hmm. it's a, and, and again, it's an innovative conglomerate of Sharia law mixed with Pashtun um, social and cultural norms. And then it's, it's really a military operation too. That's enforcing a lot of these things. Mm-hmm. So so what's that like to be a Christian in Afghanistan right now? Um, and it's probably going to get worse for our Christian brothers and sisters in Afghanistan. Um, the organization Open Doors USA has put Afghanistan as the number two country on the most heavily persecuted nation for Christians in the world. Um, it is right behind North Korea. North Korea is number one, so Afghanistan is number two. I said this earlier, 99.7% of Afghanistan is Muslim. Actually, I don't know if I said that. I said it's a Muslim country. But uh, even still, man, that's most uh, analysts estimate there's ten to 12,000 Christians in Afghanistan. Mm. So that's nothing to sneeze at. I mean, that's a yeah. pretty big number. Yeah, and I wonder, just thinking through Afghanistan's history, if this is a high watermark of Christendom in Afghanistan. You know, like if yeah. there has ever been this many Christians in Afghanistan, I just don't know, you know, I don't know yeah. if it's ever been recorded because there's, it's, you know, Afghanistan as a 
geographical territory has changed hands so many times through the course mm-hmm. of human history. Um, and since Christianity's founding, it's probably changed hand 12 to 15 times in terms of different empires coming in. But yeah, I wonder if this is very historic for that region that having that many Christians in it. Cause you know, after, yeah, I don't know. after the Taliban was pushed back, you know, Christian missionaries from all around the world flooded into Afghanistan and spread the, and spread the gospel there in Afghanistan. Yeah. But, well, it's interesting too. If you look at the history of Christian Christianity in that part of the world, um, a lot of church historians point back to uh, possibly the apostle Thomas, mm-hmm. who some, some church uh, histories claim that Thomas went to India Mm-hmm. And um, they point to Acts 2 that there's different uh, ethnicities that are mentioned there in Acts 2 that were hearing the gospel proclaimed in their own language. And one of the ethnicities is basically um, this part of the world, Afghanistan. So mm-hmm. I believe that's part of the Parthian Empire at the time. Um, so the history of, of Christianity Afghanistan it goes back all the way to the first century, um, according to some histories of the Christian church, which I think is really, really, really interesting. So yeah. the current constitution, this is, again, not the Taliban, but the current constitution of Afghanistan allows the practice of other religions besides Islam, as long as it's within the legal framework of Islamic laws and doesn't threaten the Islamic religion. And part of that is that you can't convert someone who is Muslim. I mean, you you technically can, but if a Muslim chooses to change their faith to Christianity, they are subject to societal pressure and government pressure, and it may lead to confiscation of property, imprisonment, death. Uh, I mentioned this earlier. They may even be sent to a psychiatric hospital because leaving Islam is considered a sign of insanity. Mm. So several Afghan Christians have been arrested for practicing their faith, um, which is kind of a contradiction of their constitutional rights. But again, there's the rules on paper, and then there's the rules that are practically fleshed out. Um, Many sources believe, and kind of Open Doors USA believes this as well, that there is a underground church of Afghan Christians living in Afghanistan. Um anywhere from 500 to 8,000 individuals. Um, and so they're probably meeting in homes, practicing their mm-hmm. faith secretly. Mm-hmm. Um, and when the Taliban comes in, the, basically under the Taliban's regime, if you're not a Muslim, you either have to get out of the country or you have to accept second-class citizenship Um where you're considered an apostate, you have to brace for severe consequences under Sharia law. Um, Part of that is that the Taliban is constantly threatening to kidnap your children. Hmm. And you're under constant threat for your life. Um, Some Christian leaders are saying that it's uh, it's like mafia style. Like there's no... um, Responsibility for the killings is just a matter of time before killings start. And it's just kind of like, hey, what happened to that guy? I don't know. Um, 
and it's almost like, you know, the book of Daniel when uh, the Hebrew children had to bow down to the uh, image of Nebuchadnezzar. When mm-hmm. the call to prayer happens in the villages five times a day, if you don't bow down and pray at the call to prayer, you're going to get arrested. Mm-hmm. So if you're Christian, I mean, you've, you've got a target on your back. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause I mean, they're, they're looking for the people that show up in the mosque. They're looking for the people who bow down to pray. And if that's not you, then you've got a target on your back. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's the thing that's really sad about this is like, many of these Christians, it seems like had this false sense of security because of the presence of coalition forces there. And they began to actually um, get emboldened by this and put Mm -hmm. their religious affiliation on their official government paperwork, Um, you know, and identify as Christians on their, on their paperwork. And now that that security is gone and the Taliban has swept in, they're officially on the record as being a Christian. So at at best, they'll be allowed to to live, but maybe not practice their faith and and have to pay the the Muslim, like it's called the the jizya tax, where non-Muslims have to pay a tax every year. At at worst, though, um, they're going to be forced to convert or die but their faith is completely changed radically changed like they don't they're not going to have freedom of religion like they like they thought they were going to have yeah um so the idea of like building a church building or walking around with a bible under your arm it's just going to be completely different and and unheard of yeah which is heartbreaking Mm -hmm. like even if even if you're not a christian it's heartbreaking to know in places in the world people don't have the liberty or the personal freedom to be able to practice faith the way that they so choose. Mm-hmm. But if you are a believer in Jesus, man, that, that's even more heartbreaking because we have our brothers and sisters that are over there that are faithfully following the Lord and it's costing them everything. Mm. I mean, I can't even, I don't even have the framework to imagine what that's like if I knew that me observing my faith, me owning a Bible, me trying to meet with other believers on a regular basis, that put my children at risk to be kidnapped. Mm-hmm. I mean, can you imagine that? I mean, I if that yeah. happened here in the U.S., how many Christians that are observing their faith now would just be like, I'm out. It's not worth it. Yeah, well, it gives us kind of this reality check where it's like, wait a second, if my children were, you know, God forbid, put at the end of a gun and told to denounce their faith, what would my children do? And am I teaching them appropriately to die for their faith? No. And that's terrifying to think about, like, sitting down with our kids and saying, hey, here's something worth dying for. Yeah. And if it comes down to it, give your life for your faith. And I don't know that the American church is doing that at all. They're doing even thinking about that. We're thinking no. like missing football practice. We're thinking, like, <laughs> you know, getting a new pair of shoes for school. And the American church is so weak and impotent in its ability to suffer for the gospel that no. if suffering ever did come to our shores for the sake of the gospel, uh, yeah, it would be 
catastrophic. It would be interesting in the sense that it would refine the body of Messiah oh, in the United States of America. But um, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't know that. We're, well, we think. I, I know I'm not. I'm failing in that department. Uh, yeah, I mean that's a that's a real gut check for sure. I, you know, we think that um, persecution is people making fun of us on Facebook. Mm-hmm. You know, that's persecution, and and I. I don't discount that. I mean, that's definitely a form of social and ideological persecution. Sure. Mm-hmm. But I don't think we have a framework to understand what real persecution is like mm-hmm. until we start really examining what the practice of the Christian faith in some of these countries that are, you know, so heavily persecuted, what that means and what that costs these brothers and sisters. And yet they're still willing to pay that cost. Mm-hmm. Which is, which is amazing. Like, why are there so many followers of Jesus that are willing to go to prison? They're willing to give up their lives. They're willing to be tortured. They're willing to lose everything. And yet, they're still staying faithful to Jesus Christ. Like, if you're not a believer in Jesus, man, that in and of itself is very compelling evidence for the reality of Jesus. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, it's very... Very counter human nature to give your life for something you don't fully. Yeah, it's yeah. Um, your your actions prove your belief, you know, and yeah, yeah, it's fascinating. Yeah, so the Open Doors uh, USA website lists the watch list of the ten most persecuted nations in the world. Number one is North Korea, which I'm fascinated by. North Korea, I have watched every documentary I could get my hands on in North Korea just because of how it's essentially the novel 1984 in a nation state. Mm -hmm. So their main religion is agnosticism, state sponsored atheism, but really their main religion is worship of the state. Um, So if you are even like, if they sniff out and are suspicious that you may not be loyal to uh, the state of North Korea, they will send you to a hard labor camp and they will punish people to like the second, third generation. Hmm. So it's insane just how systematic and how heavy, heavy the persecution is in North Korea. But that's a, that's number one. Mm-hmm. Um, second is Afghanistan. The third is Somalia. Uh, the fourth is Libya. Fifth is Pakistan. The sixth is Eritrea which is a little country on the Horn of Africa next to Ethiopia. Um, some people have called Eritrea the North Korea of Africa. It's mm-hmm. such a closed country. Um, really, really interesting. Just kind of the, you know, what's happening in Somalia and Eritrea. Um, it's been a politically unstable place for years. But uh, number seven is Yemen. Number eight is Iran. Number nine, interestingly, is Nigeria. Which is so interesting because there is such a, like the biggest church in the world is in Nigeria. Mm. So it's like 50-50 Christianity and Islam. Mm-hmm. And of course, that's where Boko Haram is in Nigeria. Mm-hmm. And so you see that there is a ton of Christians in Nigeria, but they're constantly at risk for being kidnapped and violence happening. Um, and so, yeah, that's, that's number nine on the open doors world watch list. It's a dangerous place to practice your faith. Hmm. 
And then number 10 is India, where Christianity is still not considered uh, the primary religion. Hinduism is the biggest religion in India, but even in the northern parts of India, Islam is is very uh, common. And so if you are a, a Christian, you are opening yourself up to persecution, not just from um, Hindus, but also from Muslims as well. So, hmm. so Gabe, what do we do? What can we do? We read all this. We see all this. We look at what's happening in Afghanistan. Is there any hope? And what can we do about it? Well, yeah, we, we pray for the return of Christ. Um, we pray for um, the safety of those who are being persecuted because of their belief. We pray for them to have supernatural encouragement and support um, that they would be literally like a living sacrifice that they would have the the boldness to do that and that we we could have that same faith um i think we have to look back and be thankful and not take for granted the amount of freedom we have in the u.s to practice our faith openly yeah um and and not allow that freedom to allow us to become lackadaisical in our faith and um but can i, I go, can i go off on a side note for that i, want, I got a, sure. like a, a bone to pick yeah it's interesting to me how many people were so upset when the, um, you know, two weeks to stop the spread or the government shutdowns and all that stuff for COVID when they were like, they had no business shutting the churches down. Mm-hmm. And then when the churches opened back up, so many of those people who were so vocal about they should never have shut the churches down, they didn't even come to church mm-hmm. when they could come to church. Mm-hmm. They just sat back and moaned and griped about how the government has no business shutting the churches down. But then when the churches opened back up, they didn't even go to church. <laughs> so it's kind of like, dude, you can't sit there and complain about how our freedoms are getting taken away if you don't even exercise your freedom when you have it. Mm-hmm. Like to me, that is mind-blowing. Like you're complaining that freedom might be taken away, but when you do have the freedom, you're not doing anything with it. You're saying these are people who like, were going to church, then church shut down, and then they stopped going to church after churches opened back up? Are people who may go to church like twice a year, Christmas, Easter, and then whenever it's convenient. When conditions mm-hmm. are perfect, they'll go to church. Yeah. But then when like churches shut down because of COVID, which I understand, but it, you know, I, I don't think they should have shut down. That's just me. That's probably another episode. But mm-hmm. when the churches opened back up, so many of the people who were so vocal and adamant didn't even go to church. Like, and, and to me, it's just like mind blowing. It's just like, dude, you keep saying that America has freedom of worship. That's going to get taken away, but it's not taken away. Now you still have the freedom to do it. You're just not doing it Hmm. because for a lot of people, I don't think it really has much to do with theology and them loving the Lord. It's more ideologically driven. Yeah. Yeah. Just the idea that you should be able to do it, but I don't, you know, that's really yeah, not important I, to me on a day-to-day level, you know. I can respect the ideological aspect of it, but why do you have the ideological aspect of like like a like a like let's say a um an atheist libertarian, for instance? Right. Like, um, why do you think human beings deserve liberty? Mm-hmm. If you don't believe in a higher objective moral authority, why do human beings have any intrinsic like value and dignity? Right. Um Whereas I have a worldview that can sustain the idea that humans have intrinsic value and dignity and therefore 
should be bestowed liberty um, and free will and choices that they can make pertaining to their faith. Um, but yeah, that that's seems seems odd. But yeah. I, I can appreciate someone being like, "Hey, I'm an atheist, but I believe they should not have shut the churches down." Yeah, no, I can't too. But but... I'm like, well, that'd be great if you atheist, you know, would embrace a worldview that can sustain the notion that that right. human beings deserve liberty. <laughs> no, I'm I'm talking more about the Christians that oh yeah are yeah. complaining about how they feel like some of their freedoms are going away. But yeah. then they don't actually exercise the freedoms that they do have. They just sit back and complain. Yeah, it's like someone saying, "Get out and vote. Get out and vote." You know, and then they don't vote. They, they yeah, don't vote because yeah, they they forgot they had a football game they had to go to. Or something. <laughs> yeah, like, exactly. It's like, dude, oh, we didn't get around to it today. Yeah, yeah. There's people on the other side of the world that would do anything to be able to come to a gathering of other mm-hmm. believers openly, mm-hmm. and and you haven't been in three months. Mm. You know, I, I just it, it's mind blowing to me. You know. So I think one of the things we can do to remember the persecuted church is like, don't take the freedoms we have for granted, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. When it's, I think reaching out, like I have several friends that are missionaries and have been in countries that are, you know, it's, it's very difficult to be a Christian. Um, they've tasted, they have seen those difficulties face to face and bringing them into your congregations and your churches and allowing them to speak and to share um, gives us all that dose of perspective that we need here in the United States yeah, of America. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I think letting believers know in these countries, letting them know that we are thinking and praying for them, I think is mm-hmm. huge in terms of encouragement. Absolutely. I think educating ourselves is huge. Um, mm-hmm. You can go on the website for Voice of the Martyrs, mm-hmm. or you could go to Open Doors USA, and there's country profiles on all of these countries that are on the watch list, you know, 10 most persecuted countries in the world. Um, there's a great book called uh, Voices of the Martyrs. It's written by a guy named John Fox, kind of an old, uh, I think it was written in like the 1800s or maybe even earlier, but mm-hmm. uh, basically stories of, you know, people like Polycarp of Smyrna and some of the church fathers, how they gave their lives for the sake of the gospel. And it's, it's incredible. I mean, this is this is part of our heritage as Christians. We Christian extremism says I'm willing to die for this. Muslim extremism says I'm willing to kill for this. Yeah. But our heritage is made up of men and women who have been willing to say the reality of who Jesus is demands every part of me and I'm willing to die for this. Um there's a really good documentary that's been put out by the uh, International Missions Board called The Insanity of God. And it talks about missionaries and believers in other parts of the world who are, who have and who currently are uh, experiencing persecution for their faith, but they're still standing firm. It's incredible. Mm. Um, you can also give so you can financially support a missionary in a difficult area. There's ways to do that. Um, you can pray for these nations. There's a resource called Operation World. You can go on their website, and every day of the year, there's a different country you can pray for um, and pray for the the work of the Lord happening in those places. And so there's there's ways that we can have our hearts soft and have our, our prayers directed towards this and, mm-hmm. um, you know, not, not dismiss this as a, purely uh political talking point but rather uh 
really lean into this and see the humanity in, in places like Afghanistan and other places. There's real human beings made in the image and likeness of God that are suffering right now and they need our prayers. Hmm. Yeah, very true. Yeah, man. Yeah, we'll see how this Afghanistan thing shakes out. I mean, as the dust begins to settle, we'll see if the Taliban is the Taliban it says it is, or if it's the Taliban of the 90s. Um, and either way, I my heart breaks for the believers there. And either way, they're going to be living under intense Sharia law. And if they're allowed to live, it's their lives are still just going to be radically different. Yeah. And I, I pray for justice for people who failed in their duties, you know, and all, all across every board here, you know, if it's accepting bribes, if it's accepting money to lay down weapons, if it's um, negligence and if it's political games, I just pray for justice in those situations. Amen. Amen. Um, there's just so much that happened probably behind closed doors that we'll never know. Yeah. And uh, unfortunately, innocent humans are caught in the, the middle of it. I know. It's heartbreaking. Hey, let's do this as we close uh, our episode today. Will you say a prayer for mm -hmm. the believers in Afghanistan and the situation in Afghanistan? And uh, yeah, if yeah. you're listening to this and you're a person of faith, which I hope you are, maybe you could say a prayer with us as well. And we'll just say a prayer for uh, what's happening in Afghanistan. Yeah. Father in heaven, we pray for... Um, the nation of Afghanistan, and we pray for your kingdom to come soon and in our days. And may you rule and reign and emanate peace from your throne. And I lift up the believers in Afghanistan and give them encouragement and give them boldness to not only know how to suffer, but to know how to suffer well for the sake of your kingdom. And we pray for a faith like that in the United States of America and may it come without persecution. May it come without oppression and threat of violence and wake us up as a church in America. And may we find ways to serve those around the world. And we find ways to teach our children how to suffer for the gospel and We'll give you all the glory for what you're going to do. And through the through the believers in Afghanistan, the miracles that you'll perform and the testimonies that we'll one day hear coming out of that country, may you receive all the glory for it. And I pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, brother. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you guys for listening up to this point. This has been a marathon episode. Yeah. So, yeah. Number 37, I think. 37 my goodness hey and we have new listeners from other places in the world we have a listener from france who mm -hmm. has been going bananas lots of downloads from the nation of france so if that's oh. you and you're listening you want to send us an email send us an email love to hear your story and how you found our podcast so um, we see from which parts of the world people are listening and it's pretty pretty remarkable just uh, the people that tune in from other places so thank you guys for listening so mm -hmm. all right We'll see you guys next time. Well, thanks for listening. That's our show. If you like what you've heard, make sure to give us a share, leave us a review, or send us an email at beardsandbiblepodcast at gmail.com.